morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you. Uh, if you're just uh, joining us or visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome to the Fourth Avenue Church. I hope your experience is what ours was four years ago when we came and visited for the first time and what a couple of uh, my friends who have visited over the last couple of weeks have said. One of them said, even before the worship service was over, I already felt safe, like I could be myself here. Another said it felt like family. That was our experience. We pray and hope that it is yours as well. Um, I, I uh, Thinking about what we're doing as we kind of go forward into this time, uh, we have been looking at the book of Revelations. We're going to kind of uh, put that aside and go a, a different direction for the uh, rest of the year. And here's the way to think about what we're doing. We want to have different voices that will come and speak into this moment, voices from here in the family. So next week, Will Baxter will share, and then uh, you'll get a chance to get to know Nikki uh, Fox's uh, heart a little bit more, one of our youth ministers, and Nancy, and Evan, and Robin, and others. But we thought, is there a way to kind of hold together what we want to do for the end of the year, but still allow people to go with the Spirit of God in terms of what He's put on their heart? And this idea came to us to, to talk about life verses. This came in part because independently of each other, I noticed that um, Gary had, in, in two or three staff meetings in a row, just started instead of with a, a pre-planned devotional, he just opened it up and said, we're going to life verses for you. Either things that have blessed you throughout your life or something that's blessing you in your life right now. And, and independently of him, I noticed that, that we were doing that in some of our discipleship groups as we were sharing with each other. And we thought, why don't we do that? the rest of the year what, what are some life verses and when people come and speak it may be sharing as I did a couple weeks ago things that have verses that God has spoken uh, in, in my life or other people's lives throughout our lives or or as this week is it's just a verse that right now is speaking some words of life to me uh, almost two weeks ago I was thinking about this day actually I wasn't thinking about this day that's the irony I was actually just doing one uh, an old Bible reading plan I found myself just reading scripture and I read this passage and it just captured me and I started just with my own personal time in prayer and then imagine what a week and a half what we might talk about so what I'm sharing with you is a right now life verse something that I just read and and I believe for me was speaking what was going on in my heart maybe some direction uh, for us as a church family. I hope it blesses you as well. So let's begin just with the reading of that text. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them, only Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so many years ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
I, I want you to think with me as we begin what, what has come to me uh, to, for me to see is one of the greatest struggles we may face in our lives. And it may sound strange to you when I first say it, but I want you to think with me for a moment. One of the greatest struggles that you may have to face in your life is what do you do with the best? What do you do with the best moments? What do you do with the best times? What do you do with the best experiences in your life? Now, if you're like me, when I first hear something like this, you would say, hold on, no, Dean, you, you mean what do you do with the worst times? <laughs> what do you do with the difficult times? No, I, I mean this. I think one of the greatest struggles we may ever face in our life is what we do with the best times that we have experienced. This came in mind to me in, in recent weeks when I saw um, two glimpses of, of kind of art imitating life over the course of the last 45 years. What I mean by that is, is my wife and I have shared before, uh, we, we, we uh, love watching any form on television in any era or any age of kind of whodunit shows. And one of our favorite that goes back to uh, be before our childhood almost really, and for years, is the old show Columbo. And I remember there was one show in particular, you put up the image of this, called Forgotten Lady. By the way, if you know anything about this show, Columbo never looks that good. The, the story is this guy of a, uh, who's a detective who looked like he just rolled out of bed. He always looks like he's bumbling and fumbling his way through it, but he's brilliant and always captures the killer. In this story called Forgotten Lady, the lady on the right kills her husband. She's not an evil person. She has mental illness and other things behind it, but she kills her husband because he's going to stop her from remaking her movie career. And the key aspect of this story and what makes it so tragically painful and difficult is she cannot escape the glory of the greatness of her past. And she spends countless hours alone upstairs in the little movie room watching films that she made years and years ago when she was a great singer and a great dancer and the most important star in the world. That show played 45 years ago. And now today, David tells me, my son, that one of the number one top streaming shows in television or on Netflix now is the show Cobra Kai. Maybe you've heard of this. <laughs> Cobra Kai is the sequel now, some 30 plus years later, of the Karate Kid series and has the original actors who come back in it. And by all accounts, one of the most delightful parts of this show is the character Johnny Lawrence on the left. Yes, the bad guy in the first movie. And what's hilarious about him, like Uncle Rico in another movie in Napoleon Dynamite, he can't escape his past. He is stuck in the 1980s. So when he is introduced in the show, he's in his old Pontiac Firebird and he's playing poison as he's driving down the road and he's telling kids to get those ringtones off their phone and, quote, put some Guns N' Roses on there. He can't get out of the 80s. He can't escape the great days of his past, the best music and the best cars and the best girl and the best times, except for when he gets kicked in the face. And so this is the picture. But listen, 45 years apart, the very same theme happens as art imitates life, and I could go back to Aeneas, and I could go back to Shakespeare, and you'll see it again, and again, and again. Everyone who has any sense of wisdom will say, sometimes the hard thing that we have to do is deal with the greatness of our past, and the best of our past. And I believe in this story that is so familiar to readers of the New Testament is a story that can help us not just deal with the dangers of the past, 
but also Jesus invites us on a journey in this story to help lead us into our best future. So I want you to walk with me through the story with Jesus. The first thing he says is, come and climb a mountain with me. Come climb up the mountain, Jesus says, because on this mountain, I'm going to bring you into a God moment, a God encounter. And that's what Jesus always seems to be doing. As he comes here and walks the face of the earth, he's always drawing people in to a deeper encounter with the one who made us, draws us into some spiritual encounter, God moment, with this highest power of the universe right here on planet earth. Now there's a lot of little hints and themes. This is very similar, by the way. We're picking up literally almost where we left off last week with the God encounter moment. That one's more obvious. We see the kind of vision of heaven itself and God sitting on the throne. This one becomes obvious, but, but there's more hints and themes here that let us know that we're having not just kind of a typical day in the life of Jesus, but a God moment, a God encounter. Uh, a couple things I'll just throw out here. First thing, it says that they, Jesus took them up on a high mountain. That seems like a simple thing, but it's pretty significant because in the Greek language, the word for mountain could mean anything from a hill to a big mountain. So think it could mean the hills of Tennessee, or it could also mean Colorado mountains, and anybody who's been to both knows there's a big difference, right? And Mark says it's a high mountain because we need to think Everest and Colorado, not, not the rolling hills of Tennessee. Why is that a big deal? Because in Jewish thought and throughout biblical history, the mountain is not just a literal place, it is a symbolic place where heaven begins to touch earth. I love the way one commentator puts it when he said, in the Jewish mindset, the mountain was a suburb of heaven. (laughs) So it's the Franklin of the heaven of Nashville, right? It's just coming closer, and Jesus climbs up on a high mountain in order to account encounter God and then also we have this moment where it says literally the cloud overshadowed them anyone who has danced through the Old Testament before has these moments where a cloud leads the people of God in a time of uncertainty through 40 years in the wilderness or I think even more significant for this particular moment two times in Israel's history they built a place to come and be close to God we know God is everywhere but it was a meeting place and so one was a mobile God unit, so to speak, was called the tabernacle. It was a tent. And then later on, there was a physical structure called the temple. Did you know in both places, when they finished it and they were about to have their first worship service, the same thing happened. A great cloud, and I quote, overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled it so they couldn't participate and go on with their already laid out worship service. So we begin to feel what's going on as they're climbing up this high mountain and a cloud is overshadowing them in the moment. And then a voice speaks out from heaven and we're called back to some of the characters in the story. We we think about the Sinai mountain shaking voice of God that is so imposing and so powerful that the people of Israel say, you go talk to him for us. We can't stand to hear the voice of God. That kind of God mountain voice. But it's not always that way. Because another character shows up in this story, Elijah, had a different experience on a different mountain, actually the same mountain, a different mountain experience with God with a still, small voice. And sometimes the quiet, silent voice of God thunders inside the human heart even louder than the great mountain-shaking Sinai moments. 
And so we hear the voice of God speaking out of heaven like we heard earlier in the book when he speaks over Jesus at his baptism, but like we've heard all the way through the Old Testament. And all of a sudden we realize this is no ordinary climb up the mountain. This is Jesus inviting them, as he always does, into a deeper God moment than they've ever had before. Or my favorite one, my favorite one here, is three little words. It says, six days later. Big deal about that. Well, I point this one out, not just to say something here. This is a teach how to fish, not just fish kind of moment. Here's, here's a great piece of wisdom I was given a long time ago. And this is true for any story, but it's particularly true for Jesus stories or biblical stories. Always pay attention to weird details when you see them in the Bible. When, when there's something dropped in there that seems odd or out of place, or why would they say that kind of thing, stop there and pay attention because often something comes out of it. Again, this happens throughout the Bible. Mark has a lot of them. Mark loves doing this. Give you one example before we look at this one. Back in chapter 6, there's a pretty important moment. The only miracle that happens in all four Gospels, other than the resurrection, is the feeding of the 5,000. And it says in Mark, in no other Gospel, it says Jesus assembled and got them out there and set them down, listen to this, on the green grass. What a strange detail. Why waste scroll space to put that little thing in there? But all of a sudden, if you go back and read in chapter 6, it says when Jesus looked at the crowd, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout Israel's history, they had time after time when leaders had failed them and, and, and places where they felt lost and abandoned in some way. And God's consistent promise was, I'm not ever going to totally rely on human leaders. I'm going to myself to come and be a shepherd. And maybe you remember the prayer. That is also a promise. The Lord is, help me guys, the Lord is, I shall not, he makes me lie down in what? In green pastures. Why does Mark include this part in the story? Because he wants them to know it's not just a big potluck for a bunch of people here. This is God stepping into God promise. Being the shepherd for the people that do not have one. Isn't that beautiful? Pay attention to weird little details in the story. After six days, they climb a mountain. What's the big deal about that? Well, if you ask most Israelites, the most significant moment in all of faith history for them, certainly the most significant moment in all of Jewish history for them, was the time Moses climbed up on the top of Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God. And this is how it reads in the scriptures here, Exodus 24. Verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain, and then on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up onto the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Do you get the picture <laughs> Jesus is saying to his disciples, we're climbing the mountain, but this isn't just a little quiet retreat. This is stepping into God-changing-the-world kind of revelation and encounter. And Jesus does this all the time. Do you get this picture? Again, this relates to part of what we talked about last week, but let me say it again. The God we worship longs to personally and powerfully encounter his world and the people in it. So Jesus says, come, climb the mountain with me. 
ah, but the problem, the problem is what it always is for people. They're terrified. They're fearful. And so what do they do? They do what they always did. And I would argue that we people always tend to do. We always build shelters and make markers. We always want to build a shelter to make markers. So this, this is what it says. Peter, and no surprise if you've read the story. Peter didn't know what he was doing, so he started talking. <laughs> it's good for us to be here, God. <laughs> Moses, Elijah, Jesus, God speaking. Hey, it's great we're here. Let us build three shelters. This word literally means tents. A lot of debate about what's going on here. The big picture is clear. I'll get to that in a moment. But it, it very likely refers to one of their practices. They would have an actual feast called the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents or Booths or Shelters. And they would build these, these little shelters here, these temporary shelters. And it was a way of freezing the moment of a God encounter in the past. When God walked with them, homeless so to speak, through the wilderness. And so maybe what's going on is Peter is saying, hey, let's hang out here. Let's do Feast of Tents or Tabernacles here in the moment. But there's other aspects of what's going on. It's a marker moment. Here's the way one scholar puts it. I think he nails it. Like Peter, on those rare occasions when we experience the elusive presence of God, what we most want is to build shelters. Now listen to this. Why? To prolong or commemorate it. To prolong or commemorate. Listen, when I have a great experience of anything, God or anything, I want to freeze the moment. I want to stop there. I want to build a shelter. I want to hang out. I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to stay right there. Moses, wow. Elijah, wow. Can we build some shelters for them? And Jesus, yeah, let's throw him in there too. Let's build some shelters. Let's prolong the moment. And this is part of what I was reading a couple, again, this was not for a sermon. I'm just sitting there on my couch in the office and I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the Jewish people did this all the time and it's incredibly healthy. I wonder, by the way, if it wouldn't be a very healthy practice for us now as a church that is hopeful and yet grieving, that's had a great history and past and wonders where we're going in the future. Here's what Israel did all the time when they had great God moments. They built markers, they built piles of stones they made shelters they said we're gonna symbolize the moment and we're gonna take it in oh you know some of those right remember Jacob when his name is changed to Israel he falls asleep on a rock and all of a sudden he has a vision and heaven splits open and a ladder comes up and down and so he builds a pile of rocks and said we're gonna name this place God was here and we're gonna mark this particular moment but when Joshua leads his people into the promised land he, like his predecessor before him, steps into some water and then the water splits in half. Jordan this time, not the Red Sea. But he says, before you set foot in the promised land, you, big, you build a big pile of stones, of 12 stones, to remember who God was and what he did in this place. So hear me, it is a healthy thing to build a shelter and build a marker. That's a really good thing. So maybe when we, we grieve as a church and we celebrate as a church, make some markers. It could be a heart marker, it could be a physical one, it could be an image, it could be a symbol, it could be telling stories. There is something about owning where we've been. It might be with your family, it might be with a job transition, it might be with the world, whatever. When you've had a good experience, let's learn from those who've gone before us, make a marker, own it. 
By the way, some of the most unhealthy things I've ever seen people do when they've gone through any change or any transition is to forget it and act like nothing happened. That's insane, but it's also incredibly unhelpful. What the Jewish people do is they say, look, we cannot go forward into the future without remembering where we have come from. We're going to make a mar marker, and God was here. Now, there is something important, though, in the story as a warning. The warning is markers and monuments are great, but do not let the marker or the monument become a mausoleum. Do not let the celebration of what God has done in the past become an impediment to what God is about to do next. That's the problem, right? Sometimes we don't know what to do with even the best parts of our past. Uh, there's a great line that I came across, or it came to, I don't know, for years it stuck with me, and I want to share it with you. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your next experience of God is your last experience of God. I mean, think about this. You, you get what I'm saying? Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your next experience of God is your last experience of God. Or you could make it more general. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to your next experience of life, of goodness, of family, of friendship is holding on so tightly to the last one that we are not open to the next one. I've had the privilege to serve many churches over my years, but two of them in particular that I love deeply, I love them all deeply, two of them have an incredibly glorious past in our Churches of Christ heritage. I mean, I, I remember uh, doing, uh, in, in our seminary study, and we would read books on Church of Christ history, and there was a whole chapter, uh, uh, almost, on, on the last one I worked at, and there was a whole section on the one that I came here in Texas from, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, and those are glorious things, but here's the thing that I heard in both places from people who had been there a long time. One way or another, they would tell me, you know, this is great, this is wonderful, I love where we've been, but here's the problem. Sometimes we can't get past the greatness of where we've been in the past. And we spend all the time thinking about all the great things God did back then, and we're missing out on what God's doing right now. Watch out for that. My wife and I catch each other doing this now. Our kids are growing up, they're growing fast, and, and sometimes we will get so nostalgic about, oh, when they were little, and and, you know, we, we, uh, we look at Iridesk coming into the building, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish they were little and I could hold them again. And, and then, then have God moments where he says, hold on, hold on. Don't miss out on the people they are right now, today. Because of the greatness of things that have You see what I'm saying? Sometimes the greatest obstacle to our next experience of whatever God has for us is holding on too tightly to the last thing that God had for us. So what does God do in his kindness? He says, look, look, listen to this one. <laughs> yes, Moses was great and Elijah was great and they, they did what I asked them to do. That's wonderful. But listen to this one now. Give all of your attention and your focus and your heart on the ongoing revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Pay attention to this one. It is not insignificant, by the way, that it is Moses and Elijah who are there and disappear. <laughs> because Moses is not just a person and a character, he also is a symbol representing the Torah. We translate it law, terrible translation. It is the instruction of God. I like to say it's the guidance system for, God, for life that God gave us in the Old Testament. 
It's the divine GPS, so they would know where to turn and where to not to and to go deeper into an experience of God. And Moses embodied the guidance system of God in the Old Testament, and God said, that is great, but I'm not finished guiding your life. Moses was awesome, but he led you to this one. Now listen to this one, who will guide you into the fullness of life. Moses' faith. And Elijah is there. Elijah, the great prophet, the great miracle worker, the great wonder doer. The one who doesn't just give instruction, he gives a prophetic word. Why, why is prophecy so important? Because it's not just God said back then, it's God saying right now. The voice of God breaking into the present moment. And Elijah did that powerfully. But God says now, if you want to hear a living, life-giving, challenging, convicting, growing word of God, listen to this one. Because Jesus isn't finished yet. And Elijah faced. I'm telling you, I'm sitting in the room and I knew it. I told Mark, this is, this is why I wanted to talk on this. This is what it says at the end. Can you just take it in for a moment? Let the picture sink into your head. All of this crazy stuff's happening. This cloud and mountains and Moses and Elijah and Peter running his mouth. But by the end of the story, it said no one was with them anymore. Two words. Only Jesus. And all of the greatness of the past and all the voices of the past and all the confusion of the present fades in the presence of the glorious transfigured one who lets them have just a glimpse of where he's going in the future. It's two chapters before he said there's going to come a day when the son of man comes and he's transfigured and he's brilliant. And the transfiguration is almost like God takes the end of the story and drops it right in the middle just for a moment just to keep us going. And God says, listen to this one. I'm not finished yet. He leaves them with only Jesus. I know I've told this story um, a couple years ago to our Bible class. And I'll share it with you. It's a, it's a crazy moment that I had some years ago. I, I'd worked for 10 years in the church that we were at in Virginia. Wonderful church. Love the people. Great people very conservative, a little different than our approach to things here, a little different than I had grown to experience in my own life. And in that time, in that place, I remember thinking and looking back, I mean, I was young, I was a young minister, and I, I was spending so much of my energy because people in places like this helped me see a bigger picture of God, and I learned grace for the first time and all of that, and I look back in that time in my ministry, and I spent so much time and so much energy trying to move people out of old Church of Christ stuff. So I'm about to get to the silly thing, and I, I, like I did with the class, I give you permission to laugh at me too. But I remember thinking, I'm going to the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, within my history book. There is K.C. Mosier teaching grace in 1950, before it was cool, in Churches of Christ. And I actually had this thought, please be kind to me. I actually had this thought, what am I going to preach now? I actually thought that. I spent all the energy up here teaching them about grace and moving them to grace. And I thought, they already know it. What am I going to preach and teach now? And I remember the first Wednesday night, I stood in front of 300 college students to give a, a message. And God gave me this word that sunk from inside of me. And it said this, Jesus is enough. He's enough. I don't have to go find all the bad places of the world and put them out. 
I don't have to go find all the fires that are going on in the culture around me and put them out. I don't have to fix all of the problems in the church heritage. Jesus is enough. Now, i got to be careful on this. Because if you're like me, sometimes I can say that or I can say those words, and, and it means nothing more than kind of a bumper sticker. It's a very shallow experience, a very kind of, yeah, we say that, but there's no real meat to it. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a great quote that's attributed by some to Augustine, to others, to St. Jerome in the past. Some great follower of Jesus in the past said this about the book of John. I'm adapting it to the life of Jesus. So hear this. When we say Jesus is enough, we're not talking about something shallow and milquetoast. This is what we're talking about. The life and teachings of Jesus, and here's the quote, are shallow enough for a child to come and drink without fear of drowning and yet deep enough for the greatest minds to dive in without ever touching the bottom. Isn't that good? The life and the teaching and the mission and the purpose of Jesus is accessible enough that a child can come and drink from it and have life, and yet the most brilliant people in the world can dive all the way down to the depths and not even come close to finding the bottom. Jesus is enough because he grows with us. And when we talk in this church about leaning more into and praying into a vision for the future, we're not changing the grand vision of what God is saying. We're talking about what I'm hearing our shepherds say, what's God calling us to now? What are the places in the world that we lean into now? What are our unique gifts now? But here's the grand vision. He already gave it a long time ago. I, I love David Young talks about this. People will, from time to time, what's the new vision for the new year? He said, I'm sticking with the old one. What is it? Jesus said a long time ago, go into all the world. He wasn't just talking to the group of people there because that line alone tells you he envisioned something that would go on throughout history. Everybody that heard these words in Matthew 28 understood that it wasn't just these guys, it was the whole church. Go into all the world and make followers, make apprentices, make students, disciples of the life of Jesus. Baptizing them into this glorious relationship. It's not a religion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring them into the dance. And then train them. Teach them. Apprentice them, school them from a young age to walk out the life of Jesus. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. Here's what hit me a few weeks ago. The world was in chaos. Church was in chaos. Thing was crazy. And I walked out of a Discovery Bible study. Some of my friends right here. Got on the phone, talked to another guy. We got three of these Discovery Bible studies. Not the only way to do it. But here's what hit me. I got these discipleship groups with people. And no matter what happens in the world, no matter who's running the country, no matter who's standing up here, we're going to keep following Jesus. And we're going to keep going deeper with Jesus. And we keep encountering Jesus by asking a few questions. God, what are you doing today? What are you saying in my life today? Where are you calling me today? And I think, I don't know, that may be enough to do. <laughs> because I can sip the water on the side of the pool. But Jesus says, okay, now it's time to dive deep and see if you can't. Dive as deep as you want to and you'll never touch the bottom. Jesus is enough. Radical commitment to the life of Jesus is enough. And so here's my challenge, and then we'll finish. Find a circle and dive in. Find a circle of, Matthew calls them in the message, climbing companions, and climb a mountain together. Peter, James, and John did all sorts of things together in pursuit of Jesus. It may be your family. It may be a discipleship group, it may be a prayer group that you meet with, it may be informal coffee, it may be a ministry group, but I'm just, this sounds so simple, but I'm inviting you to be intentional 
in climbing the mountain. We've had fun for like nine chapters in the book of Mark, and Jesus says, now you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Grab a group of people, get in a circle, and dive deeper into the life of Jesus. You want help on that? I've got some tools and resources that I've been blessed with. Mike Shinnick will talk to you. We've got others. Shepherds are doing this. But here's the thing. I'm convinced if you do that, you will find that Jesus is enough. That for the rest of your life, he will continue to astound you and spellbind you and mystify you and challenge you until you take your last breath. I experienced that recently. I drove over to Memphis to see one of my dearest friends in life, a mother figure to me. And I went to see her for the last time before she went home to Jesus. It says Lois Hicks. She's Mrs. Hicks to me. She was my mother's best friend growing up. She was the wife of our minister growing up. She's the mother of my teacher who, who walked me through seminary and graduate school. But as I was driving over and thinking about what I was going to say to her, knowing it would probably be the last time, it just, this is what hit me long before I ever had the language of grace. She's the one that taught me that. I grew up in a very performance-driven environment in a performance-driven church in a performance-driven world, and she was the one person in my life that it was always okay just to be me when I showed up. I remember when I was learning how to drive, she's the only one I wanted to drive with. because, Well, she was a crazy driver, true, but she would let me drive. She'd let me make mistakes, and it was okay, and she gave me the freedom to learn and grow. She always showed me grace. I drove over to Memphis. There were two things that... that endure for me that she is the embodiment of what this passage is talking about to me and maybe you have someone in your mind that you're thinking about too one was a picture that her son sent to me of the last sunday that she was alive she's sitting in her hospice bed in her house and they're streaming the service like some of you are doing right now she never missed church i'm not talking about you got to go to church but i'm saying she loved to be with the people of god and they they sent this picture of her folding her hands, caught up in worship and prayer while it was going on in the stream. Because the day she died in her 90s, she soaked in the life of God. But here's the favorite, my favorite thing to always tell about Mrs. Hicks. She never stopped diving deeper into the life of Jesus. I used to go and I would stay at their house, her and her daughter and the kids would run around. I would stay in their house for a week or two at a time when I was doing my uh, master's work at Harding. And here's what they did. If, if you're in Memphis and a church supported Harding School of Theology, they would every semester offer a course that, that any member of that church could go and audit. So guess who was in the classroom every semester? Mrs. Hicks. I am not exaggerating. I have two postgraduate degrees in Bible and ministry, and I'm not exaggerating at all. She has taken far more classes than I ever will. In fact, when I was there just a couple weeks ago, her daughter said there's no more for her to take. She took them all couldn't get enough of Jesus but here's what happens if you keep sinking deeper and deeper in the life of Jesus it can't help but to spill out hear me till you take your last breath shared this with several of my friends Ken and others said make sure you tell the story a lot so I share it with you as we finish up came in and sat next to her bedside and I told her what I told you that she was an embodiment of grace she could barely speak but this is what she communicated to me she has four children, three sons and a daughter. Her youngest son was sitting right next to her, four children. So she held up her hand and she did this. One, two, three, four. 
disappointed the millions in the world. Pointed to her youngest and she said, that's not the baby you are. And that's so true in so many ways. She can barely speak, but she cannot help but to pour out from her soul the depths of walking with Jesus and climbing the mountain every day of her life and what her life testifies. When you're confused and you're afraid and don't know where we're going, hear this. Her life testifies. In the end, it's only Jesus. And that is more than enough. Father God, we give you praise for the lives of people who show us who your son is more than anyone we can imagine. But most importantly, that it is your son Jesus who is committed to climb us up that mountain and take us to the next step. You never are finished with revealing the wonder and the glory and the goodness and the conviction of the life that exists in God. Thank you for him and for lives like that. And I thank you for a church that is committed no matter what to climbing the mountain together that we might learn again and again and again that your son Jesus is enough. In his name we pray.